Have you ever felt invisible? Welcome to a very special episode of Mars on Life. I am, as always, Sini, and joined with me, as always, <laughs> Sebastian Shug, wondering what that intro was. Uh, that's a reference to one of the movies we'll be talking about today. Um, mm. A very, very slight reference that never, every time I've seen this movie, it's never left my memory. I don't know why, um, but we'll, we'll certainly get to it. Um, before we start, I uh, just kind of wanted to briefly mention this week marks the uh, 40th anniversary of the death of John Lennon. Um, he was killed in New York City on December 8th, 1980, uh, right outside his apartment building, the Dakota. And obviously, his legacy is something that the music world will never let go of. Um, you know, obviously, he was one of the Beatles. Uh, he left an unmatched legacy in that band with a lot of his music that, of course, he co-wrote and sang with Paul McCartney. And we can't forget, of course, his great solo career. Um, they know their Give Me Some Truths. They know their Imagine. They know their Give Peace a Chance. But uh, as our Instagram post said, you know, check out some of his other albums that don't typically have the usual sort of greatest hits. Um, brief side note, I, last year I played uh, one of the songs on his album Mind Games called One Day at a Time. And that was a song that first time I heard it, I was doing my and this will sound weird just because, you know, John Lennon, people think he's very hippy dippy, think he's, you know, you know, oh, peace, love, you know, and all that. But um, there's something in some of his music that if you haven't heard it, it definitely strikes a chord that, you know, across the universe or she loves you won't strike. So um Definitely give his other stuff a listen. And, and th I don't really know of any other way to kind of transition into a, a secondary story I wanted to mention with you, Sebastian. See, less than three minutes. Um, no. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> you're looking at about maybe two minutes, 37. And, yeah. you know, I was heckling you earlier because, the, the, you know, when you have a topic that you're just so damn entranced about. Mm -hmm. You know, you tend to kind of bend the ears a little bit. Um, no shit. Uh, Mid-40s, <laughs> episode-wise, in a podcast, and each episode really ranges... It rarely ranges less than an hour. So, yeah, I could I could safely see where that, where that energy ended up into. All in good um, fun. Now, I'm curious... Can you recall what was the last movie you saw in theaters? God. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I do recall it actually. Um it was Sonic the Hedgehog with my older with my older brother from our fraternity. Very cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. We we talked about that I think when it mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. Uh not exactly what you'd call uh peak comedy nor <laughs> really peak anything considering the franchise but it actually did um it actually did exceed my expectations so to speak uh, i don't know if it was whether or not uh 
we as consumers bullied Paramount into actually making a product that was worth showcasing. Mm. But there really does seem to be no other alternative because the pre-design, what we saw in the first trailer, uh, looked like garbage. Oh, horrifying. And, and after that, they actually managed to clean it up a bit. So if we can leave off with a message, it could be uh, bullying works. <laughs> No, I, I bring that up because, uh, number one, of course, out of my own natural curiosity that, you know, I have, but also uh, I found a very striking parallel with myself and the guys from Red Letter Media, um, which you and I have have mixed feeling, or at least we, we have different I conversations. Do. You, you, um... How should we say this? You like them, I do not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not for sake of content. It's, um, well, actually, no, it, it is for sake of content. It also, it it's also sake for delivery of said content. Yeah, but they, they brought up a very striking point that I, I realized I could compare with my own uh, movie-going experience uh, just prior to the beginning of the pandemic. Between the two of them and myself, the last movie that we saw, respectively, in theaters uh, was Rise of Skywalker. Oh, um, sorry. I know. it, But in a weird way, there is something tragic and yet very... Uh, what's the best word something that's very you i wouldn't say unique but very you know obviously given red letter media kind of became what it became thanks to the star wars prequels largely <laughs> um or at least it gained their notoriety oh, through it, their oh it became something it oh became yeah something all right um and of course my pre-established thoughts on the franchise and and growing up with the franchise it's very poetic as George Lucas would say, that uh, if we if we really are in the uh, in the end times of film, or not even a film, just of the, of movie theaters, then of course it would have to end with a Star Wars movie. Was it a good one? Well, listen to our last episodes and find out. But the reason why I kind of bring up this whole movie theater this, uh, topic, no, it has nothing to do with. Uh, the recent hubbub over HBO Max and Warner Brothers being slip movies on HBO. Um, but it actually has to do with three movies that have been released over the past decade that I think in many ways encapsulate just a lot of the bizarre mythos, if you will, of Los Angeles. And uh, it just so happens these three movies all star uh actor jake gyllenhaal uh who is an actor that i've grown to really appreciate especially after the second movie in this loose sort of spiritual trilogy um and to kind of just set it uh these movies are 2012 film end of watch the 2014 film nightcrawler and the 2019 film velvet buzzsaw um Start off, I, I know that we had kind of a Netflix snafu in regards to trying to get you to see End of Watch. Did you end up finding a way to watch it? Or I did not, unfortunately. 
unfortunately. Uh, Netflix has been a bit of a pain for me as of late. Uh, the last show I actually managed to watch, as I mentioned earlier, uh, was Waco. And then all of a sudden, um, I pretty much got cut from their service. I think it's just a subscription thing, but uh, okay. I haven't been able to access it. Uh, unless I oh, torrent wow. it, which honestly is not something I'd be willing to do. But <laughs> uh, but well, then were you able to see Nightcrawler and Velvet Buzzsaw? At all? No. I, oh, I'm, I'm essentially no. going into this okay. discussion blind. Yeah. Oh no. my god. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I know, I know, I know that I'm missing a whole hell of a lot. Uh. Yeah, no, aside from being uh, Yarg, I'm a pirate, matey. I'm going to steal it. Uh, I'd rather not go down that route. That's fair. That's fair. Um, okay. Well, this will be fun, then. Um, because I think, and I, I think I told you this uh, a long time ago, that I think out of these three movies, you would probably like the first two more. To kind of start it off with End of Watch, it's a very almost documentary style film um in some ways and this is like the most random movie that it reminded me of uh but it was also filmed kind of like a documentary it, it it's reminiscent of district nine where you have a lot of kind of handheld filming going on where like characters are filming other characters talking to each other um mm-hmm. and you've got like third person shots where there's just nobody there with a camera it's just showing you what's happening but it still feels very documentary style um it was directed by david Ayer, who of course did training day um he did suicide squad and i believe what was another movie he did i just had it on the tip of my tongue uh the fast and the furious is another movie he did but it basically stars uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, of course, as Officer Brian Taylor. He's an LAPD officer, and overall the film is largely about him and uh, Michael Pena's character, uh, who got the name down, uh, Michael Zavala. And basically it's just about the two of them kind of on patrol in South Central. It's such a weird movie. It's fun movie as well just because uh given the climate of course and given the uh feelings and thoughts that a lot of people myself included have about the los angeles police department it's it's weird to see it just because you watch it and you have your kind of pre-established feelings but then at the same time you do really enjoy these two characters and their chemistry um if i had to kind of simplify how they kind of how their chemistry is it's basically the kind of banter you would expect from you and me wow. like interesting it's it's very i i in re-watching it i kept thinking these guys are like me and sebastian like this is this is a little <laughs> i'm living in, little i'm scary. living in a true i'm living my own truman show i'm the main character you see <laughs> see this is what happens to people who don't leave their house in eight months <laughs> And who and who resorts to uh, ideologically analyzing film? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's, that it's also a bit too deep. <laughs> oh, not even. Uh, well, well, that's what's funny about this is that out of these three films, uh, this one is definitely the most uh, 
uh, how would I put it? The most believable, I get. Oh, I don't even want to say that, but it's it's the most straight laced and most kind of basically you've got enough of an understanding of the characters that you're like, yeah, this movie could happen easily. Um, it's definitely the grittiest, the most grounded, and you know, obviously seeing them kind of drive around South Central, seeing them deal with, you know, they're dealing with the Bloods, they're dealing with MS-13, which is hiding in parts of South Central in the film. Um, you definitely get a little bit of the grittiness and also just questionable stuff that goes on uh, that police officers may do with either civilians or with each other. Um, they screw around a lot in this movie, and uh, whether it's stupid pranks like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's trying to film, uh, he starts filming on a camera in the locker room of their uh, police station, and David Harbour, who also plays a police officer, he's like, you know, turn that off, turn that off, you shouldn't be having a camera in here, I'm going to report you, and, you know, Taylor's just like, oh, well, it's it's for a class, you know, it's for a thing, and they and they just fuck around all the time. Like they they do this knowing they'll they'll probably get in trouble. Um, but seeing their chemistry is is definitely pretty hilarious, and and I won't spoil the end of the movie, um, just because it it does have something of a tragic ending. Like I said, I think this is the one that you would probably enjoy just from the standpoint of it's a well-made movie. Um, like you feel the heat and the sweat and the, you know, atmosphere of that part of LA that they're driving through. And, right. you know, it, you get various perspectives when there's like a shootout because every now and then, Oh, look, one of the cartel guys has a camera. Well, whoop de doo how convenient, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's interesting in that regard too that you know this it's base it feels like a very patchwork movie but at the same time it tells a very compelling narrative. I don't know. I mean, I guess from what I've told you, I don't know if you've seen any, you've read anything else about it or or if you remember trailers for it when it came out. Oh God, man. I mean, I tell the truth, I really didn't grow up in that kind of household where those types of movies were just interesting to my family um mm -hmm. you know I, I we can now assume that it's probably s walking the line of it being a classic but i mean you gotta understand my <laughs> my attention span has, <laughs> has definitely dwindled and with you know netflix pretty much being the last bastion of streaming services that i used to use effectively no longer do so um, I mean, it sounds interesting. It really does. I just wish I had a ways to see it now. Yeah. No, I, I feel bad that, because I, I, listeners. You know, it, it almost came yeah. at, it almost seems like it came at the right time because after Waco, I was just like, okay, I pretty much saw everything I needed to see for a while. It was time to get back to work anyway. So, yeah. you know, I, I didn't find myself watching a whole lot of Netflix really a whole lot of shows anymore outside of right outside of you know what i would see with heather but uh heather yeah. typically doesn't watch movies 
if you watch well, and, and this movie uh, in particular, I because I I'm right there with you. This is a movie that I when it came out, I didn't care to see it. You know, I'm not a big fan of like crime dramas or films like that. But what drew me in and this uh, I think I, I told you this a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I have a couple stories that relate back to our alma mater with each of these movies um, that really kind of tie in why I saw all of them when I did, or at least mm-hmm. the first two more so. Um, so a fraternity brother of mine who, unfortunately, I don't think you got the chance to meet him. His name's Michael. He joined, uh, we met sophomore year. Uh, we became roommates sophomore year. We were living on campus and his ambition was to either become a lawyer or a police officer. And he saw this movie and loved it. And he would tell me like, oh, Ryan, you got to see this. Oh, you got to see this. And, right. you know, at first I was kind of like, eh. and this was before I kind of became as enamored with Los Angeles as I am now. Um, arguably that kind of started the year before as a freshman. Um but I ended up seeing it at some point that year and outside of, you know, him wanting to be a cop. So that's why this is a great movie to see. You watch it and it leaves behind an impression where, again, given the times we are, the times that we live in and given, you know, my own personal uh I'll put it this way. I've never had a run in with LAPD, but I, I've had family that have been part of LAPD. And mm-hmm. so I have my own pre-established uh, opinion there that I won't go into just because I still got two movies to bring up. Uh, and the lot and the third one gets really weird, uh, really weird. But uh, <laughs> but it's still very Los Angeles in a, in a cool way. Um, but you again, you watch this and you really you you fall in love with these characters like they're that goofy and honestly, these are like two guys that we would have had in our fraternity, you know, mm, like okay. their their dynamics are just that kind of it's that kind of humor that we would in, you know, going with each other. And not to say fraternities and, you know, police departments are the same. Their similarities. Don't get me wrong. There can be. Um, and, and the level of stuff where the, that they're able to get away with. It shouldn't have astonished me, but it kind of did, especially given that this movie came out in 12 and Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena really got involved, like being on like patrols with LAPD officers to kind of get a feel for their job and what they do. Like they went all the way with mm-hmm. their portrayals of these characters and it shows in the movie. Um, and, you know, you can take it as a bad thing, take it as a good thing. Um they they deal a little bit with the bu- the bureaucracy and the hierarchy within law enforcement in Los Angeles, which is very fascinating to see. And, and if again, if anything, it, it just shows you one part of Los Angeles, I think, in a very perfect way with a compelling narrative that feels real, but it makes you kind of reevaluate some of your beliefs in a sense. Um, hmm. Interesting. So, so so it's it, so it's one yeah. of those movies that you know the, there's an extreme takeaway once you yeah. watch it. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's even, you know, there's fun stuff. Like, you get to see a little bit of their personal lives. Um, Anna Kendrick plays Jake Gyllenhaal's girlfriend in the movie. And, you know, they start dating in the movie. And they kind of build they build their relationship. It's not a huge part of the movie. But it definitely gives more of a story to Zavala and Taylor that just it makes you care about these characters more. Um, and, you know, David Ayer, he's a director that I, I and, and you might scream at me when I say this, I still need to watch Training Day. I have it on my HBO Max list, but I still need to watch it. Um, but everything I've read about the guy, interviews I've, you know, heard with him, he's he's a he's a phenomenal filmmaker uh suicide squad aside yeah and then that, that kind of goes into our next movie which this is the movie that i think it's if this really is meant to be a trilogy or at least viewed as a trilogy this fills that role as that great second film because in a lot of ways uh this movie is like what would happen if Arthur Fleck wanted to be a SoCal journalist. <laughs> uh, Nightcrawler. He would have had, had a good. He would have had a good run of it, though. I'm sure that there's some. There's some online forum that would take him. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and and trust me, you basically see what that would be like with uh, Hall's character in this movie, Louis Bloom. Um, and I I. I Mention Arthur for two very big reasons. One, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal lost a ton of weight for this role, and so right. he, yeah, he's he's scrawny. He kind of wears sort of more older kind of retro clothing, which kind of goes with the sort of noir feel that this movie has. It's very noirish. Um, and on top of that, he's awkward as hell. Like, I've like I'll put it this way: I have worked with journalists that are like this guy, because he's smooth talking, but he's also very calculated. Like, he will strong arm you if if you're having like a business business discussion or if you're talking about you know how how to cover something um this is the movie that once you see it we could probably devote an entire episode on it um <laughs> because like i said i i i and this goes to into another cal state northridge uh related story uh friend of the show kenny barry uh when he and i were working at the newspaper there uh let's just say we had a co-worker at the newspaper, I won't name names, but we did have a coworker that was Lewis Bloom to a frickin' T. We we worked with this guy, basically. Like we worked with a college version of this character where he is so strange and he is so twisted in the sense that what's right and wrong to the general public doesn't mean it's right and wrong to him. He'll take advantage of that in order to either boost himself in terms of his career, which this individual definitely did, 
or he'll use it to his his advantage to hurt people that he works with, which he also did. Um, that's a story that I don't think Kenny has gotten into yet, so I won't bring it up here. Um, it was something him and I both <laughs> watched. Uh, it basically covers uh, – the movie covers this guy, Louis Bloom, lives near downtown L.A., and you know he's looking for work. You can already tell he's a very sketchy guy, not just by how he looks, but by the fact that he's committing little petty crimes here and there. Um, and the director, uh, Dan Gilroy, yeah, Dan Gilroy wanted him to be kind of like an anti-hero. And he winds up coming across a, uh, oh, what was it? I think it was a vehicle fire on, I think, the 5 Freeway. And uh, he bumps into these night crawlers in their van that stop by and start filming it. And uh, at one point in the movie, he bumps into a night crawler played by Bill Paxton, which, little digression, uh, is a really fun callback to Twister. Uh, you've seen Twister, right? Twister, the 96 film, right? Yeah, yeah, with Bill with... Paxton and Helen Hunt. Oh God! About tornadoes. <laughs> well, I gathered. <laughs> I can see by the fucking cover. <sighs> Probably. I mean, dude, you you gotta understand. Like, my household was comprised mm-hmm. of a wide variety of movies. Okay, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Twister was one of them. Although you okay. couldn't see a movie like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Silence of the Lambs, like like any of these movies without walking in on mom or dad watching it and being like, hey, can I watch, you know, because yeah. you wouldn't go into this cabinet under any circumstances to watch a movie that you knew fuck all of what it was, you know? Yeah. So I, I stuck with cartoons. I mean, I could have. I very well could have back in high school, I would say. Oh, but OK. Go ahead and go ahead and give us the cliff notes. Uh, Well, long story short, it's about a group of storm chasers that are trying to conduct a science experiment with a huge container that has a bunch of sensors that measure all parts of the tornado. And Bill Paxton's one of the lead characters. Uh, Helen Hunt plays his soon-to-be, or at least he hopes to be, ex-wife. And the movie was written by Michael Crichton, who, of course, created and wrote Jurassic Park, uh, the novelization long before there was ever a movie by Steven Spielberg. Basically, as they're trying to catch up with these tornadoes that are just getting more and more extreme, they bump into uh, these characters that are, you know, that have a bunch of high-tech gadgets, and they're basically a bunch of nightcrawlers themselves. And so their whole idea is we go out and about to not only study the tornadoes, but film them and then sell them to the local news and make money off of it. And it causes some contention with Bill Paxton's character, who's named Bill, and uh, and I always butcher this actor's last name, Carrie Elwes, who you may know from yeah. The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he plays uh, Jonas Miller, who's basically the antagonist of the movie. He's the smooth talking, you know, oh, look, we have all these sensors and, you know, they get sucked into the tornado and get a little bit of a sense of the fact that Bill Paxton's character is a weatherman uh, on local Oklahoma TV news. And Jonas basically has his own journalism racket that is, you know, it's it's being a nightcrawler as somebody that knows people that have those skills and abilities to cover any kind of news incident, whether it's a structure fire, vehicle fire, a wildfire, a murder, um, a car, a traffic collision, whatever it may be. I'm using a bunch of terms that I had to use in a newsroom covering this stuff. Um, there's people that do it professionally, but between Jonas's character in Twister and specifically Lewis Bloom's character in Nightcrawler, he starts doing things that are much more unethical. Um, and I have to use uh, a sentence that describes the movie from Wikipedia, always reliable. Uh, a common theme in the film is the symbiotic relationship between unethical journalism and consumer demand. And as the film goes on, you see Lou Bloom basically becomes very full of himself. He's trying to make his own independent news resource while selling his footage to a local news station, which is run by, uh, uh, the characters played by Rene Russo. Uh, remember her name because she comes up again in our third film. But, uh, you know, he hires a homeless guy to basically be kind of like his, uh, you know, his intern, basically, and winds up putting themselves at risk when it comes to everything from, you know, a murder that takes place at a house and, it, it basically reaches the point where he's doing things to such an extreme, but he's doing it in such an extreme because, and this is a journalism term that I've heard several times. In fact, I've had editors say use this term toward me. If it bleeds, it leads, which I'm sure you've heard that term before, too. Um, right. And so you kind of see that Rene Russo's character is a little bit ambiguous in terms of, you know, oh, well – People want to see urban crime going into the suburbs. They don't want to see, you know, a shootout in South Central, for example. Um, and she kind of shows a very ugly side of journalism that I will be the first to say, probably not the first, but I will certainly say is it definitely exists out there. Um, you do have people working in media that are like that. Um, and so you basically get a great sense of how Lou is trying to sort of bend the rules in order to get the the cringiest, most uncomfortable footage that you could find on. And, you know, you've seen it whenever the local news decides to cover anything. Uh, they always give you that warning of, you know, what you might see could be considered disturbing. Right. And then they sure. show it again and again and again. <laughs> um, and it, it, of course, it's frustrating because it's like, well, if it's disturbing, why do you keep showing it? And it's like, well, ratings. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it's and, and so 
Dylan Hall's character uses that to his advantage, but he also uses it to be a total creep. Like, and this is arguably the third facet of him, which is all of those scenes with Arthur Fleck and uh, Zazie Beetz's character from Joker. He kind of does a version of that uh, with another character in the film. Who I, I won't give it away just because, you know, I really this is the, out of all three of these. This is the one I want you to see. Um, but it, it just it gets so freaking twisted with, in this movie and the, the stuff that he pulls and especially he pulls stuff on Bill Paxton's uh, character, who's kind of his competition that. Even though Bill Paxton's kind of a schmuck in the movie, um, R.A.P. by the way, uh, gone too soon. Um, like you wind up feeling bad for him by the end of the film, and that's basically just because of what Lou does to him at one point. Um, you can probably guess what he does, but it's it's that kind of thing where you start wondering, wait a minute, how do we cover the news? who becomes part of the news um yeah i mean i i don't know kind of what i've told you about nightcrawler i guess what do you what do you think given its reputation it's it's definitely something i'll have to see man i um (laughs) you you forgot to mention kit that car yeah he he gets a bitch in car. <laughs> That's like the best part. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, that is. It, it was definitely on. Uh, I mentioned briefly the the list that my my stepfather had given me about movies that I had to see before I died, and mm-hmm. Nightcrawler was definitely one of them. I think it was like shafted in the middle of like Bill and Ted and like the Golden Compass. Anyway, highly recommended, and you are just another person to tell me that. So thank you. Oh yeah, and and obviously, for me and and for Kenny as well, like this was a movie we joked about a lot uh, when we lived together at the dorms at CSUN, just because of the guy that we worked with, but also just the fact that for us this was like the first time we ever saw a movie that just came out that was not only about journalism, but it covered the sort of nighttime scene of Los Angeles that, you know, all of us are used to, all of us that live in SoCal, we're used to seeing, you know, a pursuit or some horrible thing that goes on in any SoCal. Hell, there was a wildfire out in Ventura Two of them, actually, uh, just the other night. So mm-hmm. it it caps into a lot of that. And you even see news anchors that you would normally see on the local news playing either fictional versions of themselves or just different characters that are news anchors in general. Um, but Gyllenhaal's performance in it, it, this is a guy who thinks so quickly on his feet. And the fact that he's so willing to break the law just to get a good bit of B-roll, it's terrifying. But at the same time, I could believe it happening, you know? And I, I say that about my own, my own field, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> that's for that's for damn well. Sure. I well, do so it. that's the, well, you know, the um the highest rank of achievement that any journalist can achieve is them getting killed because they found too much. So right. it's either you play to the game's over, or you settle in the uh the the pool that is mundanity if you want to have it defined by that. So, you know, take your pick. Exactly. And and you see that like he he be he becomes obsessed with the rush that you get in you know obviously the all the rush that you get in covering an emergency like and and trust me that's something that does happen no matter who you are in journalism that happens to you at some point um you know I've been through it friend of the show Emily Alvarenga I know has been through it like it's but at the same time with Lou, he takes it to such a frightening extreme and it just winds up feeling like, you know, he's doing it because he, you know, he doesn't want to be a low level executive. He doesn't want to be a an intern. He wants to be at the top of the food chain. He wants to go from nobody to somebody with just one bit of film. And mm-hmm. he becomes basically like a poor man's Jordan Belfort for most of the movie. Like he, his negotiating tactics are brutal, but he's so savvy that it's like, Oh, this guy really doesn't give a shit about anybody. Like he will walk all over you just to get to the top. And he proves that time and again in the film, but to kind of touch on sort of LA landscape, like I said, you get all these great shots of Los Angeles in the film, which, you know, let's face it, any movie set in L.A., that's easy to do. You know, that's mm-hmm. a really easy thing for any filmmaker. But, and this is something you see with all three of these movies, they use Los Angeles not only as the landscape, the setting, but it becomes its own character. And in this film, the fact that it's predominantly at nighttime you you get that kind of cruel, cold, killer feeling. Uh, and maybe I'm just talking for myself when I say this. Maybe I've read, uh, I've only read City of Quartz once. Um, but you get that almost constricting feel with L.A. that the only other city in the world I could think of that has that feeling is, and this is a city that's way more dangerous than L.A., uh, Rio de Janeiro, which has its own sort of dance with the devil when it comes to having a big nightlife, but also being immensely violent, like stupid level violence goes on there. Um, mm-hmm. And even this year, it's kind of been that way in L.A. You know, there has been upticks in homicides and, and violence across the board. So it's absolutely worth watching if you're a fan of Joker. Yeah. This is what Joker could have been without all the DC stuff. Take out the Waynes, take out Joker, take out Gotham. And this is basically what that movie could have been. Except it's got the name of a Marvel character without said Marvel character. It's one of those movies that I hope to God they play it in journalism classes in the future. Because Mm -hmm. it's basically everything you need to know about who you will experience 
but also what not to do when you go out there and cover anything, whether you're in broadcast or print or online. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. Which then, which, yeah, definitely. Um, hell, I'd recommend this as a date movie too. <laughs> <laughs> now, this third one might be tricky for you to get a hold of just because of the Netflix issues you've been having. Velvet Buzzsaw, which just by that title alone should give you an idea of the the chicanery that happens in this movie. Um, it was marketed as a thriller, also directed by Dan Gilroy, who did Nightcrawler. And it was marketed to be a thriller focused on the world of art criticism. And... Uh, Gyllenhaal plays uh, this art critic named Morph Vandewalt, and he's this very sexually ambiguous art critic who is slowly realizing that, uh, okay, well, it just goes right into the sort of the main point of the story, which is he's sort of part of an ensemble, um, Rene Russo plays a local art dealer in Los Angeles. Um, you know, you get to see her competitor, who's this South African guy named uh, John Don Don. A lot of these names in this movie are very art worldy. Um, I'm blanking on the actress's name, but the actress who plays Nancy in Stranger Things is in it. Um, she plays a young woman named Coco, and she basically is like everybody's coffee girl. This movie is so campy. So campy. Like, you think Force Awakens is campy? You haven't seen hey, campy. I didn't say Force Awakens was campy. I just said Force Awakens wasn't good. Period. Uh, well, well, I think you said the dialogue was campy. Oh, well, the dialogue's been campy since 1, 2, and 3. Hell, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> dialogue's been campy. Well, it was wooden in 1, 2, and 3. No, the dialogue's been campy since 4. Okay, you can't tell me that uh, that, that dialogue wasn't gaffy enough. <laughs> it was just, dude, like, you dislocate your jaw at the amount of cheese in that fucking dialogue if you took a bite out of it, okay? Lucas is not known for making good dialogue, and really, Disney isn't either. Once, once bought. True. So, oh yeah. I don't know. What you, I don't know what you expect. Well, this. Well, well, this. I'll put it this way, because if our discussion about uh, Exorcist Three wasn't enough to kind of give it away to people, I. And maybe you can blame Red Letter Media in some capacity for this, but I have become a lover of schlocky filmmaking. Like, there's that new Russell Crowe movie that I'm slightly tempted to see, I, I, even though I I've heard to, it's terrible. I have to, I have to I've ask, heard he's hilarious. I have to ask, is yeah, it Roger yeah. Ebert in you that purposefully likes to watch these <laughs> dog shit films and <laughs> utilize your sort of journalistic approach to say that they're bad in an attempt to analyze them and say that that commentary is good because it's easy to make fun of a bad film. Oh, Anyone I, can do it. You know, when red oh, letter media did their grading, the unfunny, 
skit about Star Wars, it was like, okay, but we know because 7, 8, and 9 had, uh, you know, they didn't come to fruition. They weren't all out yet. And we knew 1, 2, and 3 right. were awful. At the same, you know, at some point, you got to know that you're already essentially beating a dead horse. You know, like, where does the joke come from? Right. So. Well, and I think with Velvet Buzzsaw, what, what drew me into it, because the, the premise of the film is you have this cacophony of art criticism personalities, uh, also including an actress who I believe was in Black Mirror. She's kind of like, her name's Josephina. She plays this, or she is this kind of love interest for Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Morph. Um, John Malkovich is in it as an artist. Um, you know, he he's arguably, and this is kind of an ironic thing to say because his character is an alcoholic, but he's like the most sober-minded person in the entire film. But basically, they stumble upon the artwork of this guy, that this old man that dies in Josephina's apartment, and she starts presenting it to uh, Morph and Ray Russo's character, and they start having art galleries featuring it, this artwork. Now, it's edited and shot very cheaply. Like, you can tell, you're, you're thinking, okay, most of the budget went to the special effects for the actual, quote-unquote, thriller aspect of this movie. Um, but there's so much of the editing that I feel like I'm watching a soap opera, number one. And some of the acting is very soap opera-esque instead of Hall's performance, where he just goes full-blown, sassy art critic that rips you a new one, but also uses way too many adjectives. I mean, he's all—he's almost like a socialist. He just use way, uses way too many adjectives, and it's like, whoa, dude, English, please, like, slow down. Ultimately, the artwork by this old man whose name is Ventral Deese. I know the names in this movie. I know. Um, <laughs> basically, the artwork and you, you get a vibe from this from the trailer. So th this isn't really giving it away. But you find out that his artwork is leading to a series of deaths of several of these characters. And it's. Basically, the whole film is meant to be a satire on the art industry and how commercialized it's become and how, you know, it, it's poking fun at it and basically being like, you know, oh, well, does it really need to be like this where you just prostitute everything and, and you oversaturate the market with this one guy's artwork just because he so happens to, A, be dead so you don't have to really deal with him or negotiate with him? And B, he just so happens to have like 200 pieces of artwork that basically document his childhood traumas and you want to just hop around Los Angeles. And that's where it gets into the thriller supernatural aspect. And it's Hall's character that basically realizes like crazy shit is going on and it needs to stop. Um, uh -huh. And at one point, and this kind of alludes back to what I said at the start of the show, they go to an art gallery in Miami and he's watching this robot artwork called Hobo Man. 
which is meant to look like this retired homeless veteran, but it's a robot and he's on crutches and he says these weird lines to people like, have you ever felt invisible once I built a railroad? Like just these weird lines of dialogue to people and Gyllenhaal hates it. He's like, what is this? Mm. What is this? Um, but again, it it's poking holes at an industry that I've had firsthand experience engaging with. I will say I won't go into details as to what exactly it was like, other than the fact that that pretentiousness, that bougie pretentiousness that you see exists, and it's for it's practically childish. Honestly, it, it's something that arguably you and I would have been confronting a lot had this year turned out very differently <laughs> um, it just movie just does such a good job at showing what all of these characters that are d- openly displayed as being a bunch of assholes and their very patchwork lives and just pokes holes at the fact that like you guys just don't care about anything only about yourselves and you're so high on yourselves that you are going to be totally blind once, you know, monkeys jump out of a painting and kill you by dragging you into the painting. I mean, like, and that's just one example of how somebody dies in the film. Like, the art in the film, there are, it basically shows different artworks coming to life and killing some of these characters. And again, it's shot in such a weird way. And this film was very highly anticipated before it came out because of Nightcrawler and all of the positive, all the positive reviews and all the accolades that Nightcrawler got. This was one of the most anticipated movies of last year. And if you recall from our uh, best movies of 2019, I think this was my number two. Um, mm-hmm. right. right behind right. Joker and just before uh, the Irishman. Yes. And again, like, after binging these three movies back to back to back, this one is definitely the the return of the Jedi of the three. You can tell that this is the weakest, but again, it's it's message and its presentation, I think, or at least its subtle message, add to another element of the culture of Los Angeles that these performances they're real. Camp is very ham-fisted, but you know what? Sometimes I can appreciate it. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. Is was is this something that you would consider checking out, or would you be tempted to pass on it? I'd probably be tempted to pass on it, given your initial uh, review of it. I mean, there, there always has to be one movie that is sort of the weakest link, and this sounds like it is no exception to the rule. Um, you're, uh, if you can, if you can kind of give me your blessing and say, you don't have to watch it, then Hey, less work for me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to watch it. Um, Fantastic. cause like, like I said, it's, it, like there, there were a few moments watching it where I was kind of like, okay, or in rewatching it rather. Cause last year after it came out, at first, I loved it to death. I thought this is easily up there with 
Nightcrawler. The only problem is the thriller aspects didn't thrill me. No pun intended. Like it, mm-hmm. hell, pun intended. Screw it. I mean, like it, it was cool. I guess you know, in a, in a kind of night at the museum kind of way, but. I think it's the fact that it's set in Los Angeles and, you know, you, you hear characters bring up the Broad and, you know, they, oh God, this is one of those moments of the film I actually genuinely hate, which is this one very douchey character says, you know, oh yeah, it's called Broad, not Broad, it's Broad. And you're just sitting there like, yeah, you're basically saying that to all the non-Angelinos that are watching this movie, whereas the rest of us feel alienated because we've all personally had to go through is it broad is it broad i don't know you tell me um is it, is it a pretentious museum that, that yeah. happened to me <laughs> <laughs> and very hard go. to get in touch with by the way uh well i mean little journalism 101 there what you what you think that they just they, they just cater to a santa claridan peasant like you hey I was working in L.A. at the time on an L.A. publication. Yeah, so but the 30... even then. <laughs> yeah, you, you know who else? You know who else was working in L.A. at the time? Yeah. Oh, God. Let me, yeah. Let me go ahead and give you a number. <laughs> go ahead and give you a number. Oh, the other 3.99 million, okay? And that's just a rough <laughs> estimate from 2018. God knows how much the fucking population grew then. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, overall, these three movies, and you know, it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal plays three radically different characters in each one, but Wild Way, seeing him change from character to character and seeing these movies cover L.A. in such a capacity that I think, you know, if people wanted to get... Uh, just a standard understanding of Los Angeles's societal ramifications, if you will, like just how it is, how it's understood, how people project it, how they reject it, even minus certain things like, you know, there's nothing that alludes to like, I don't know, the LA riots or the Chicano moratorium or anything of that nature. It's, if anything, all three of these show the dark sides of L.A., whether it's through its media, its law enforcement, or its branch of art, you know, and by that standard, arts and entertainment. He plays three characters that you're not supposed to like any of them, and yet you find yourself very intrigued by each one, especially his character in End of Watch. Um and, and, you know, the lengths that he goes through with all three of them, I, I have to applaud just because, you know, I and, and you know, I I haven't seen too much of his other stuff like. Uh, oh, God. What's what's the movie he does with the, the big bunny? Uh, um, it's not Requiem for a Dream. No. Oh, listeners are going to be like crucifying me for this one. Uh <laughs> Don't worry, I don't know what either. It's not the butterfly effect. That's <laughs> Donnie Darko. There we go. There we go. Um, yeah. you know, I haven't I haven't seen Donnie Darko. I haven't seen the Spider-Man movie he did uh cuz I don't care about 
superhero stuff. Um, oh, wow, he's actually from L.A. I did not realize that. Um, I have seen Brokeback Mountain and Zodiac. Love those movies. Um, he just does an outstanding job in all of them. And, you know, hell, even in Velvet Buzzsaw, like, he's the character that I think does the best job of acting out of the whole ensemble just because of the fact that he dedicated himself to this role. And maybe it's also the editing and everybody else is very fake. Whereas he is so genuine in that role. Um, yeah, I, I know this has kind of been a long diatribe on these three movies, but you know, if anything, they're, I think they are representative of the city and I think they definitely show its dark sides very, very well. But I think in an educational way, not that that's the note I want to end on, which is if you want to get educated on L.A., watch these three movies about three assholes. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I, I, hey, you know. it definitely uh, it definitely reinforces the stereotype that L.A. is a shit show when it comes to personality. Yeah, you know? that's true. <laughs> Even Pers- if it is done in a fictional setting, it's like it's like, dude, you are not going to find a more disingenuous group of people than the city of fucking angels ironically so and and there you go and all three of these characters are so real like oh yeah you could like you and i could bump into all three of them on a street corner and i mean number one it'd be weird because they all look the same well i was gonna say i'm sure i could find anyone who was thinking that they were having their own truman show and all on their high horse thinking that they were the main character of their own story and everyone else is just a fucking you know, they're just an NPC in their world. So, you know, it, it it takes a lot to knock someone off that pedestal, but it is rewarding when you do so, because I personally, I can't stand people like this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to the role players out there who, you know, take on, watch these kinds of movies and take on these kinds of roles. It's like, you might want to go get yourself checked out number one, but Mm -hmm. No, I could I could very well see hell, I could very well see people that we already know if you catch my drift mm-hmm. being one of these people and having mm-hmm. a delusion of grandeur. You, you know, it, it goes beyond Lou Bloom. I've seen variations of all three of these characters. Um but, you know, the fact that you go from gritty reality to frightening noir to pretentious thriller and the fact that you're able to encapsulate not just the personality of the city of los angeles but the ego of los angeles it's it it makes them in a lot of ways a perfect trilogy enjoyed this episode of mars on life you could find me at www.sebastianrshug.com as through my social medias 
at Instagram through Dr. Sebi, that's D-R-S-E-B-B-Y, also through YouTube at Seabass, that's S-E-A-B-A-S-S, spelled like the fish. You can also find me via Shugsy's Storytime. There you'll find just an audio archive, as well as other upcoming projects. Go ahead. Well, uh, in terms of social media, you can find me on Twitter at MancinirA. Um, and when it comes to Instagram, of course, I'm at Mancini Ryan. Uh, I'm trying to be on social media a little bit less as the year winds down. Uh, just trying to work on several things as well as uh, kind of rekindle some friendships I made a year ago at one of my last uh, one of my last gigs. So it's been uh, it's been wild to think that it's been a year since that happened. Uh, what is it, listeners? Wait and see. You may never know. Um, yeah, uh, Sebastian, we have one more episode left in this season. I think we just set it up to be probably one of the best episodes of the year. And I'm looking forward to it. I I, I am too. I It amazes me how much we've accomplished in this year um, – with what we've been able to accomplish given how wild this year has been, but you know, it only, it not to sound uh, really like an old person. It really feels like, yeah, we were just bashing uh, American dirt. So, uh, yeah, you know, clearly uh, we didn't lose because we didn't get any dirt um, to kind of allude to episode two, I guess. Um, No, but we have thrown dirt. So, you can't say that we oh, lost yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. We've thrown dirt. We've thrown shade. We've thrown a whole kitchen sink. We've thrown it all. Um, and I like it do, that way. And I do like we it regret it? Absolutely. No. No. <laughs> yeah. If the mark of a good journalist but, is us dying on our computers, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> We did it. <laughs> we did it. Well, almost, almost. We're, almost. One more. One more. <laughs> Until then, listeners, take it easy. Take care. Thank you for listening to Mars on Life. You can find us over on Instagram and on Twitter at Mars on Life Show. Uh, in terms of listening to the show, you can find us wherever podcasts are found. Uh, that includes... Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Radio Public. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel. That way you can find our full catalog of episodes. Our artwork is done by Zachary Erbrick, and our intro music is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. I've been Ryan Mancini. My co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. And just remember, if you keep on going, you'll make it to Mars.